Before we get started, some of you are aware that uh, Pastor Dorn at Inner City, his uh, son, who's going to be okay, so I'll start it with that, but he was involved in an accident. Derek is uh, a senior. He's in my daughter's class, actually, graduating this year, and should have left this morning to go on his senior class trip. So my daughter should be arriving in Gatlinburg uh, right about now, and Derek should have been with them. But we got a text from Laney saying Derek's not with us because he was apparently involved in an accident. So this is an email from Pastor Dorn from about 2 o'clock this afternoon. He says, uh, Derek is pretty banged up from being hit by a semi-truck last night as he stopped to help a lady by the side of the expressway. Now let me stop for a minute. And Derek was home alone because the parents were in Florida. And he was just spending these couple of days until he left this morning for his class trip. So this all happens while the family's out of town. So he stopped to help a lady by the side of the expressway. Apparently the truck clipped him pretty hard, and it is God's grace that he's alive. He has a seven to nine broken ribs on his right side, two on his left. His right lung collapsed, so he had to have surgery last night to fix that. He has a broken clavicle and scapula, as well as a few breaks in his neck and spine. The doctors do not think he'll need any surgery on those. He has some internal damage that they also hope will heal on its own, but they're monitoring his blood because of how much he lost at the scene and following. He had some stitches for a cut on his leg as well. So that's what's going on with him, but it's amazing that you could be involved with anything with a semi when you're out of your vehicle, I guess. So I don't know. As more comes out, if he was getting in his vehicle, you'd think he had to have been somewhat protected by a vehicle or something. If you get clipped by a semi at all. But anyway, he's, uh, you know, he's alive, and, and uh, thank the Lord for that, and it looks like he's ultimately going to be okay. But let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time tonight, and uh, also that the Lord would heal uh, Derek completely, okay? Father, we thank you for another day to serve you, and thank you for your many graces to us. Chief among them is that we can know you through the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have revealed, made known uh, what you are like through your creation through your word, and then through your son. And uh, we thank you that you brought us to yourself so that we can know you and grow in you. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can bring our requests to you and that you know everything that's going on in our lives. And we bring this request for uh, Derek to you. Uh, We're saddened to, to hear this news, but we are grateful for your protective care on this young man. And we ask that you would grant the hospital the doctors, the nurses, skill uh, to bring him to uh, full health so that he can uh, serve you as I know he desires to do. I pray for the rest of the seniors that are on their trip that you would grant them safety and a memorable time and a spiritually profitable time as well. And uh, to that end, we have met. And we ask that you would help us as we look at your word to learn it better and apply it to our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Daniel 7 tonight, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 actually starts a a new section or two major sections in uh, the book of Daniel. It's uh, 12 chapters. The first six uh, deal with uh, world history, and then the the last six deal more specifically with God's work uh, in the the lives of his chosen people, uh, the Israelites. Now, chapter 7 is dealing with both. As we're going to see, it also deals with world history, like uh, chapters 1 through 6, but it also focuses in 
on uh, God's uh, care for and work through his people Israel. And that's a perfect transition out of the one overall world history and then a focus on the Israelites, which will dominate uh, chapters 8, 8 through 12. And I've also been uh, pointing out to you that uh, the first seven chapters of Daniel have this uh, unique structure to them, uh, chapters 2 through 7 specifically, because you have in those six chapters, 2 through 7, matching subject matter. So in chapter 2 of Daniel, uh, uh, Daniel interprets a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he interprets that dream as... Uh, identifying four world kingdoms, the first of which is uh, Babylon. And then chapter 7 that we're going to see tonight has that same subject matter, but instead of a, a statue with a head of gold and chest and uh, arms of, uh, of silver and uh, belly of bronze and legs of iron, instead of an image of a statue, the, uh, the image is that of uh, four beasts uh, of different types. But they, as we will see, represent those same four world kingdoms as in chapter 2. So chapter 2 and chapter 7 deal with the same subject matter. And then chapters 3 and 6 also deal with a similar subject matter. Chapter 3 is about the, uh, the uh, fiery furnace and Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then as we saw last week in chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. And then chapters 4 and 5 uh, also deal with similar subject matter. Uh, chapter 4, the humiliation, the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And chapter 5, the humbling of Belshazzar. So chapters 2 and 7 have that kind of matching, those matching chapters. Chapter 7 now tonight then is going to give us this image of these, these beasts representing these four world, four world empires. And if you'll take a look then at Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his, on his bed. So he had a dream and visions passed through his mind. So, you know, what's, what's the difference? He got a dream and, uh, and visions. Well, he's having a dream that consists of revelatory visions. Revelatory visions, that is, that God is revealing something, making something known through these images that uh, Daniel, is, Daniel is seeing. Now, I just want to stop and talk about that just for a moment, that God in the first part of your Bible would do that uh, from time to time. And so you find in Scripture, in the, in the Old Testament, uh, you find the prophets uh, speaking of the vision that they received from the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 1, this is the vision of Isaiah. So it's not unusual, in fact, fairly common for the prophets in the Old Testament to have visions, revelatory visions from God, God making something known to them in the form of the vision. Now, I point that out because, one, that helps us interpret a, uh, a proverb that is often misinterpreted. And forgive me if I, I can't remember if I mentioned this several weeks ago or not, but if I did, then just nod off for a minute if you already heard it. But in, in Proverbs 29 and verse 18, Proverbs 29, 18, uh, the King James Version says, where there is no vision, the people perish. Um, and I'll tell you what the NIV says in that verse in a minute. But the King James, which many of us have memorized, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that sounds like 
if you don't have leaders who are visionary, then uh, then uh, people are not led properly, and therefore uh, they ultimately uh, fall to their demise. Where there's no vision, no visionary leadership, the people perish. But uh, that's not what it means in the context of the Old Testament because visions are revelatory. And so what's being said is without revelation from God, without God telling us the deal, without God making known things to us, revealing things, then we, we don't know what to do. Uh, and in fact, the NIV translates it this way. Uh, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. That's what it says. So people aren't told what to do by God, don't know what to do. They cast off, cast off restraint. So if you hear a politician like Al Gore did several years ago, you know, during uh, his uh, vice presidential acceptance speech in 1992 when he was Bill Clinton's vice pres- president, uh, he quoted Proverbs 29:18, but he was talking about the vision that he and Clinton have for the, for the country. But that's not what Proverbs 29:18 means. So visions are means that God used to make things known, to reveal things. <clears throat> and the other reason I point that out is because uh, that day is, is done. Uh, God did that in the Old Testament. Um, but in your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says, God at various times and at various ways made himself known through the prophets. And it has this phrase in that first, uh, in that first verse of Hebrews, uh, which is very important. It says, in the past, God did this. In the past, God made himself known at various times and in, in various ways. But then it says, but in these last days, he has made himself known through his son. And so you, you have this, this uh, means of visions by which God reveals, makes things known, and it was common in the Old Testament. But now, uh, with the coming of Christ, Christ is the, the end of, he's the final revelation of, of God. And so the, his emissary, specially chosen, who uh, authorized by him to pen the New Testament, and we have the closing of God's revelation to us in the pages of the book that most of you have in your, in your lap. So back to Daniel chapter 7. Then. In the first year of Belshazzar. Now, let me just remind you when the first year of Belshazzar uh, was. You remember that, uh, you remember that uh, Nebuchadnezzar started uh, his reign in 605 B.C., 605 B.C., and uh, he ended his reign in 562, 562, he died. So 605 to 562. And then after uh, Nebuchadnezzar died, there were a number of uh, people who vied for the, for the throne. But uh, finally in 556, Nabonidus uh, became the Babylonian uh, emperor. Nabonidus. And Nabonidus' son is Belshazzar. Uh, so uh, we saw uh, in last week, or especially in, in chapter 5, we saw that uh, Belshazzar uh, is referred to as Nebuchadnezzar's son, or actually Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as Belshazzar's father. But father can be um, ancestor rather than direct, uh, the, the direct progeny of and uh, Belshazzar is actually the son of Nabonidus, and uh, he was actually 
ruling uh, with his father. So he was, in effect, one of the kings of Babylon. So when it says in chapter 7 and verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of, of Babylon. So what year is this? Well, he began to uh, kind of co-reign with Nab- Nabonidus in 553. So it's 553 is what Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1 is identifying. And this is uh, about 50 years, uh, almost exactly 50 years, from the time that Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of the image. So you had a half century pass. And now Daniel is going to have this vision of these, of these four beasts, also with reference to the same four, four world empires. And Nebuchadnezzar at this point has been dead for about 10 years. And his successors to the throne are weaker and uh, ultimately led the kingdom, Babylonian kingdom, into disaster. And so... <clears throat> We have, uh, this, uh, we have this vision that Daniel is, is given. Chapter 7 and verse 1. First year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. It's 553 B.C. Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of, came up out of the sea. So you've got this uh, kind of weird, frankly, deal. You've got these four beasts. They're all different. The sea is churning. These beasts are coming out of the sea. And this is what Daniel has a vision, a vision of. So what is this, uh, what is this uh, uh, about? Well, the, the great sea in Scripture often pictures uh, fallen humanity. In fact, I'll give you a few passages that, that say that, if you care to jot them down. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. Jeremiah 6 and verse 23. <clears throat> In the New Testament, Matthew 13 and verse 47. And so you have this churning of the sea which symbolically in Scripture is often used of the of fallen humanity, sinful hu- humanity. And it says in uh, verse 2 that what Daniel saw is that the four winds were churning up this, uh, the, the great sea. The four winds of heaven churning up the, the great sea. And that uh, uh, probably speaks of God's control of, uh, and uh, of and uh, and sovereignty over over the nations, and the reason we say that is because there are more than 120 references in the Bible to wind. There are 90 in the Old Testament. There are 30 in the uh, New Testament, and over half of them are related to events and ideas that reflect the sovereignty and the power of God. So here's here's Daniel. Got these four winds churning up the sea, and we're going to see that these beasts then come out of this sea of fallen humanity. And this is God making this happen. It's God's power and God's sovereignty are are stirring this stirring this up. And so, what is it that Daniel specifically sees? Well, verse verse three 
says that four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of, out of the sea. Now, in a little bit, Daniel is going to have uh, an interpreter, an interpreting angel, that is going to explain to him that uh, these great beasts are four kings who are going to arise from the earth. Verse 17 of our chapter, that interpretation is given. And so this clearly corresponds, right, to chapter 2 and the four kingdoms that are represented in the, the great statue. So what are these, these four kingdoms and how are they represented? Verse 4, the first was like a lion and it had wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. So we know from chapter 2 what this first kingdom is that is now represented by a, a lion. A weird lion, to be sure. Wings of an, an eagle. Wings are torn off until it was lifted from the ground, stood on its feet like a man. Heart of a man was, was given to it. But who is this, this first kingdom? It's Babylon, right? But now represented by, by a lion. Jeremiah had uh, spoken of Nebuchadnezzar as a lion from the, the bushes, the thickets of, of Jordan. Jeremiah 49 Jeremiah 49, verse 19. This is what he says. Jeremiah 49, 19. Like a lion coming up from Jordan's thickets to a rich pasture land, I will chase, chase Edom from its land in an instant. Who is the chosen one I will appoint for this? Who is like me and who can challenge me? And what shepherd can stand against me? And in the context, this is all about uh, God's use of Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument to bring, to bring judgment on his people. And so he's comparing through the prophet Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar, to this lion from the thickets of, of the Jordan River. And it is a fact that when the Jordan River would overflow its banks, uh, lions were driven from, the, from the, the thickets, and they attacked people in the surrounding villages. And so this is quite a stark, stark image of these lions that would uh, kind of pasture near the, uh, the banks of the, the Jordan, but when it would overflow then they would be chased out. When they were chased out, they would attack people in the surrounding village. And so this is an image of Nebuchadnezzar and his fierceness and his attack upon people in the uh, spreading of and creation of his empire. And he's described in verse 4 as well as having wings of, of an eagle. And that's because Nebuchadnezzar's armies move with, moved with great dispatch and great speed when they conquered their enemies. Uh, he actually uh, established uh, the, the Babylonian Empire uh, with, a, a, uh, with a victory at a battle, Battle of Carchemish in 605 B.C. against a pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho of, of Egypt. And Pharaoh Necho found that uh, indeed this description that Daniel gives of Nebuchadnezzar as fast like an, like an eagle... Uh, speed and might of his armies like a lion uh, was in fact the case. 
But then it says uh, something else about him in verse 4. So not only is he powerful like a lion and attacks, has the speed of an eagle, but its wings were torn off and was lifted from the ground so that it stood on its feet like, like a man. And we read in Daniel chapter 4 how God took Nebuchadnezzar and, and uh, humbled, humbled him. His pride was removed like feathers uh, removed from a bird. He was made to look utterly insane, if you remember uh, chapter 4, until he repented and he surrendered to the, the God of Egypt. So it's probably the spiritual transformation that God accomplished within him, and we saw that together when we went through uh, chapter 4, that uh, is being spoken of when it says he was given the heart of a man at the end of, of verse 4. The heart of a man was given to it. So here's you know a lion that is transformed. And Nebuchadnezzar was, was transformed, humbled, like this eagle has been stripped and transformed the way uh, we found described back in, back in chapter 4. So that's the first beast. That's Nebuchadnezzar. It is the empire of Babylon, a lion, an eagle, feathers torn, and an apt description of, of Nebuchadnezzar. But then verse 5 says, And before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Well, all right then. <laughs> so you got this uh, second beast. This one, is, uh, this one is a bear, and then it's raised up on, on one side. So again, back from chapter 2, we know which world empire this is representing. The, 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 the empire that took over for Babylon when uh, Belshazzar uh, was defeated, saw the handwriting on the wall. That was the Medo-Persian Empire. And it was, it was ruled by Cyrus, but Cyrus also appointed, uh, delegated, some ruling responsibility to Darius, and so that's why we find uh, Darius and Cyrus both, both mentioned. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. And this now corresponds to the image back in chapter 2 where you had the two arms of, of silver representing that, that kingdom. But this one is a bear, not a lion. You know, a bear is less majestic than, than a lion. And uh, the final Antichrist is depicted as a beast in the Bible with feet like those of a bear, according to Revelation chapter 13 and verse 2. And then we're given uh, an additional detail that's not given in chapter 2 with the image of the silver arms on the, on the statue, but this is a lopsided empire. Again, notice what it says in verse 5. It says that, I saw a bear, it was raised up on one of its sides. Now, what's that, what's that about? Well, do you guys remember me saying a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Medo-Persian Empire, that, that there were more Medes than Persians in the armies of Cyrus at the beginning, but then over time, uh, there were more Persians than, than Medes, and you uh, actually had a reversal of what it was called instead of the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian, it became the Persian Mede. 
uh, empire because there was a, a change in that. And that's what's being represented by this, this bear on one of its sides. You know, back in chapter 2, you had two arms aptly representing a kingdom that was made up of two components, Medes and, and Persians, and now you have it on, on one of its sides. So the Medo influence was predominant during the reigns of, reign, during the reign of Cyrus, but it shifted to Persian dominance later under uh, Xerxes, about 50 years later. And if you were to look at Esther chapter 1, if you just hold your finger and you look at Esther chapter 1, you see this. Esther chapter 1, verse 19. Therefore it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media. Now in Daniel earlier, we saw it was the Medes and the Persians. But now it's uh, the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King King Xerxes. So here you have about 50 years later, you have this beast kind of flipping on, on the other side. And so that's what's being represented. You've got uh, this bear. It's uh, lopsided for a period of time toward um, uh, Media and then later toward Persia. And then you've got the three ribs in the mouth. What is that? Well, this, according to just about every commentator, uh, represents... Uh, three major conquests that Cyrus uh, had uh, performed uh, 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 that the Medes and the Persians uh, had under, under Cyrus. And the three were his conquest of a place called Lydia in Asia Minor, Babylon under Nabonidus and Belshazzar. We read about that in chapter 5. And then his conquest of, of Egypt as well. Those, those were his three major conquests. Uh, Lydia and Asia Minor, Babylon, and, and Egypt. And so these three ribs in his mouth are in all likelihood a representation of, of that. So you've got two empires, Babylon, the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. And then we've got the third one. Again, we already know what the third one is from chapter 2. We know it's the Greek Empire, but verse 6 in chapter 7 describes it for us. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. And the beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. So now you've got this uh, third, the third kingdom that we know historically to be the Greek kingdom, uh, empire under Alex, Alexander the Great, and it's a, it's a leopard, and it's a leopard with, with wings. So how does that compare to Alexander? Well, uh, Alexander is known uh, in history with his armies conquering one, one uh, area after another with really lightning and incomparable speed, so that in just 10 years... Uh, he had invaded Asia Minor, conquered the entire Medo-Persian Empire under Darius III, including Syria, Palestine, Egypt, 
and territory that bordered all the way to, to India. Now, this is just in 10 years this guy does all this. And he dies at the age of 33. And he dies lamenting that there are no more worlds to conquer. And so a very apt description of Alexander is this, this leopard. And a leopard's fast enough, right? But a leopard with wings, that's a, that's a fast beast. And often in the Old Testament, leopards depict uh, that which is terrifying. We find that in Jeremiah chapter 5 and, and verse 6. But then verse 6 of chapter 7 says, this leopard with the wings has these uh, four, four heads. Um, in fact, uh, verse 6 says, looked like a leopard on its back and had four wings like those of a, a bird. And the beast had four heads and was given authority to rule. So it's got four wings and it's got four heads. So why the, why the double fours here? Well, the truth is that when Alexander dies, at the young age of 33, uh, the Greek Empire was divided up among his four generals. And uh, the actual territory was assigned to each of these uh, four, four generals. And so, again, here you have Daniel, you know, long before it actually happens, giving a, an accurate description of the lightning speed and might of Alexander, but then also what happened after he died in the dividing up of his empire to his, his four generals. And then you have this fourth beast in verse 7. <clears throat> After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims, trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, we know what the fourth empire is. Chapter 2, you got the legs of... But do you remember what the legs were made of? The legs were made of iron. So here you got iron showing up again, right? And you got this powerful, ferocious, terrifying beast. It's, and then it says it's different. It's got these ten horns. And then, as we're going to read in verse 8 and following, there's an eleventh horn that comes out of, these, out of these ten horns. It subdues three of the first ten. So this is an interesting kingdom to, to be sure, and it is none other than the Roman, the Roman Empire. And, you know, uh, it's, it's Rome, to be sure. Comparing it to chapter 2, <coughs> Rome did not enter the scene of Palestine as a crushing force until... 63 B.C., 63 B.C. So here's Daniel living in the 6th century B.C. And we're going almost, uh, almost uh, you know, 600 years later uh, to, uh, to the time of the Roman general Pompey and his capture of Jerusalem. And it says in verse, uh, verses 6 and 7 that this is a dreadful and terrifying kingdom of iron. Now, now get this. The Roman Empire outlasted all the other empires combined in terms of its uh, duration. And it conquered vastly more territory than any of them as, as well. And then we've got these, these ten horns. Well, we'll see what uh, those ten horns represent in just a moment, but take a look at verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, 
there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. So you have this very interesting set-apart 11th horn that comes up out of the midst of the other 10 and subdues three of the original 10. Well, what is that all about? Well, the Bible teaches, as you go to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation, um, that there is going to be a confederation of 10, of ten nations uh, represented by 10 toes in John's vision uh, at, the, at the end of the Bible. Uh, but these 10 toes, uh, John is told, represent 10 kings. These 10 toes, these 10 kings, are the same as these 10 kings that are the, the horns in Daniel. <clears throat> and out of the midst of these 10 kings this ten-nation confederacy that is the Roman Empire is going to arise one very special horn that will become dominant. So what's, what's going on with this? Well, you've got the four world kingdoms. The Roman Empire is history, except that the book of Revelation teaches that there'll be a sort of a revival of the Roman Empire. A ten-nation confederation uh, that will be uh, a, a revived Roman Empire, out of which will come this very special horn, powerful enough to subdue three of the original ten, and become world dominant until he is crushed uh, and destroyed. And who is this special horn? How does the Bible refer to him? This is the Antichrist. So this is our introduction in the book of Daniel to the Antichrist now arising out of this ten-nation confederation that are the ten toes of the book of, book of Revelation. So, as I say, an introduction to the Antichrist. Well, everybody's fascinated, scared of <coughs> the Antichrist. I'm good with it because I'm not planning on being around. <laughs> uh, because uh, I believe that the Bible teaches that uh, God is going to remove his people uh, and remove his church in something called the rapture prior to the coming of the Antichrist. But nevertheless, you know, so I don't plan to be here. I'll, I'll say hello to you guys on the way up. But even if, uh, even if we, I'm wrong and we are here, you know, the whole point of all of this is God saying, I'm in control. Uh, and so you need, not, you need not worry. But this is the, the, uh, the Antichrist. And this ten-nation confederation that's going to be kind of reunited in the future, how's that going to happen? Well, lots of people have speculated about that. I remember back when I was in uh, my early 20s, and I would read guys like Hal Lindsey, uh, uh, the late great planet Earth. Uh, these are Hal Lindsey is among a group of people that are just fixated on prophecy, end-time stuff. I mean, that's their whole life. It's just... And, and what they try to do is they try to match current events with things the Bible says. And they're often wrong. But they have more lives than a cat, these guys. I mean, they can be wrong, and then they just come back, and then they spout something else off and make some more money and sell some more books because everybody gets buzzed up about it. But Hal Lindsey and friends back in the 80s were absolutely certain 
that the ten-nation confederation was what was then called the European Common Market. Anybody ever heard that? You guys remember hearing that the European Common Market is the revival of the Roman Empire? And, in fact, it was really cool for several years because guess how many nations were in the European Common Market? There were ten. And so we just kept looking for a horn to come out of these, you know, out of these ten in the European Common Market. Well, you know, the European Common Market is now called the European Union, the EU, and there's something like 28 nations. I remember seeing Hal Lindsey on television uh, talking about this 10-nation confederation when it was 10, so, you know, he had a lot going for him at that time. Uh, but he said, you know, now there may, they may add some, you know, they may omit some over time, but, quote, it will always come back to 10. That's what he says. And so my question, just as a, an aside, and then we'll move on, how does Hal know that it will always come back to 10? That the European common market, the European Union, will always come back to 10? As a matter of fact, how does Hal know that there'll even be a European Union? How does he know that? Well, here's the answer. He doesn't. Okay? I mean, there's going to be something. The Bible does teach there's going to be this confederation of, of nations. But when's that going to be, and what form is that going to take, and what organization is that going to be? Is that going to be the United Nations? Is that going to be the EU? Is that going to be I have? I don't know. It'll be something like that. And here's the other thing. I don't care. I mean, it's not my job to try to identify that. Now, the reason I'm beating on that is because I think it would be a really good idea if you don't waste your time with that stuff, and if you don't waste your time with people who waste their time with, with that, because it is just speculation, Right? So let's go with what God says. What God says is, uh, in, in the end times, there's going to be this revival of what was the territory of the Roman Empire, and it will consist of ten kings. And out of that ten-nation confederation will arise one leader in particular, this little horn, and uh, he will end up being uh, very powerful and uh, malevolent in his rule. And so back to verse 8. The horn, end of verse 8, had eyes like eyes of a man, a mouth that spoke boastfully. These eyes like the eyes of a man speaks of his, his brilliance. You see that in passages like uh, Zechariah chapter 3. And then a mouth that utters these great boasts, speaks boastfully. Uh, the book of Revelation tells us that he is going to speak blasphemously against the most, the most High. And so the combination of these two things, brilliance and uh, blasphemy, uh, not simply speaking against God, but doing it in a manner that's going to attract and deceive vast numbers of people according to the book of Revelation. And here's why. Because this guy, the Antichrist, is going to be Satan's masterpiece. Uh, John chapter 8 and verse 44, John 8, 44, Jesus says that Satan is the father of, of lies and a murderer from the, the beginning. The Antichrist is variously referred to, Antichrist. The lawless one, the man of lawlessness, he is called in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the King James, <clears throat> Jesus refers uh, to him as the son of perdition. And... Um, by the way, guess who else is referred to that way? Judas Iscariot. 
is referred to that way. And I just, again, as an aside, but I grew up in a church that believed that you could be saved, that you could be a child of God, and then later you could lose that status. You could be unsaved. You could be saved, and then you could be unsaved. You could lose your salvation. And as we would argue about this, um, one of the models that they would use was Judas. Judas was one of the 12. Judas was apparently saved. Judas obviously didn't end up saved. Here's the thing. (laughs) When you can use the same terminology of Judas... (laughs) that you use of the Antichrist, here's my, I'm just betting he was never saved, okay? <laughs> I mean, the truth is, Judas, Judas Iscariot was never saved, okay? And uh, the Bible has not one example of somebody who was saved and then who was not saved, not one. And all of them falter that are used as illustrations, and especially Judas Iscariot. All right. And three of the horns, according to verse 8, that were among the ten are subdued by, by the, the Antichrist. And uh, <clears throat> so this uh, powerful king is going to rise rapidly, and he's going to crush three of the ten kings who will already be on the scene, and um, he will come to, to prominence. Well, then what happens? We've got the Antichrist now coming out of this, verse 9. As I looked... Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, just catch the drama here. Really. You know, you got these ten kings. You got this one who arises now who is powerful. And in the midst of that, everything's still in control. Because the Ancient of Days takes his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I mean, there is a way to describe this thing. And by the way, the thousands and thousands and ten thousand upon ten thousand, that ought to remind you of something. If you go to Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5, that is almost exactly the same language of John saying, and I saw the Lord on his throne. And I saw thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000 singing, worthy is the Lamb, glory and honor and praise. And so this is the king on his throne in his his court. And this uh, describes his... um, his majesty. And verse 11 then goes on, and Daniel says, And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been, parenthetically, you see it's in parentheses, the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of of time. So what is, that, uh, what is that about? Well, you know, a confrontation between the Ancient of Days, God, obviously, and this uh, boastful, blasphemous Antichrist is certainly going to happen. And when it happens, this uh, fiery destruction described here of this, of this beast is like the smashing of the image. Now, do you guys remember that? There was a stone that smashed the legs and the feet of iron 
of that statue back in chapter 2. And now you've got the same kind of description going on here. So God destroys this final attempt to set up a kingdom of, of man. Just like he did, we saw in chapter 2. Now we're seeing that same thing in chapter 7. And in both those, chapter 2 and chapter 7, the end comes suddenly, it comes supernaturally and spectacularly as well. And then the other kings, their authority had been taken according to verse 12, but they were allowed to live for a period of time. Now, what's that they were allowed to live for a period of time mean? Do you remember that uh, back when we looked at the, the statue, Babylon, Persia, uh, Greece, Rome, that uh, we said that elements of each of those would live on in the others. Does anybody remember that? And so that's how there's a sense in which Babylon survives. And that is why you find Babylon still mentioned in the book of Revelation. There are vestiges of Babylon that, that, that still survive. But when this final conquest is executed, when this stone destroys the legs of iron, when this fiery destruction described in chapter 7 takes place of this final attempt to establish the king, when that happens, it's utterly destroyed and they are all gone. And, and every vestige of the kingdoms of man are gone. And that's what verse 12 is speaking of, that they were allowed to hang around, in a sense, for a while until they are utterly destroyed. Then verse 13, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Now, who's the Ancient of Days? This is God, as you, as you, as you put it together now, who's the Ancient of Days? This is God, but this is God the Father. And then I see one like the Son of Man approaching and having access to the Ancient of Days. Anybody know who the Son of Man might be? You know, this was Jesus' favorite description of, of himself. 31 times in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of, the Son of Man. And so now you have Daniel having this vision of God the Father and, and God the Son. The son, called the Son of Man. Now, why is he called the Son of Man? Here's why. Because the Son of something in Scripture refers to having the characteristics of that person or thing. So, for example, you remember James and John were called the sons of thunder. Doesn't mean they were born of thunder. That thunder's their father. It means they have the characteristics of thunder. It means these were wild boys. They were loud and crazy. Okay, Sons of thunder. Uh, Noah is said in the, in the Bible to be literally in Hebrew when it says in your NIV that he was 500 years old. It literally in Hebrew says he was the son of 500 years. Which means he has the characteristics of 500 years. Which means he looked really old. Okay, So son of means to have the characteristics of someone or something. Son of God means to have the characteristics of God. And son of man means to have the characteristics of man. And Jesus is the unique God-man. He has the character qualities of both God. He has the character qualities of, of man. 
fully God and fully human in one unique, one unique person that we call the God, the God man. Ferris Lord Jesus um, has, a, has a lyric in it that refers to both, him being the, the son of God and the, and the son of man. Um, and that's the way the Bible refers to him, both natures, divine and human. And he is fully, fully human. He identifies fully with the human race. And here's why that's important. Because only as fully human can he be the substitute for humans for whom he would die. And only as God would that death have the value necessary to redeem us. And so he is both God and man in one person, the God-man Jesus. Now, he's referred to, obviously, in the Old Testament from time to time as the Son of Man. But then he takes this title on, fully identifying himself with humanity, the character qualities of humanity minus sin. Let me just stop there for a second. Is sin inherent to humanity? The answer to that is no. No, right? I mean, Adam, when he was originally created, was fully human, but, not, but did not have sin. And so... We think that sin is inherent to humanity simply because all humanity is sinful now. But it was not created that way. And so Jesus is fully human, yet without, without sin. And he takes this title then upon himself as he walks the earth. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's his favorite title for himself. And here's the deal. When, when God came to earth and joined what he had been for eternity to humanity in this one unique person, God and man, fully both. When he did that, that union now is not temporary as it had been in the Old Testament, but it's now permanent. Now, when I say temporary in the Old Testament, do you remember that God would show up in human form from time to time in the Old Testament? These are called theon, uh, theophanies. These are like appearances of God that look like man. But they would be temporary. But now God has come and tabernacled, literally according to Colossians 2 and John chapter 1, tabernacled, made his dwelling in human form. And that is permanent. So Christ is God and man, and it's going to stay that way forever. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one mediator between God and man. Do you remember what the last phrase says? This is important. The man, Christ, Jesus. Now, why is that important? The man. The human, Christ Jesus. Now, when was 1 Timothy 2, 5 written? Jesus has walked the earth, died on the cross, resurrected from the dead, ascended back to the Father. And at the time Paul writes that, there is one mediator, and he is the man, Christ Jesus. And further, in Acts chapter 1, when the Bible records his ascending back to the Father, you know, an angel appears, and the apostles are there gaping into the sky. Remember that? And they say, uh, this same Jesus that you've seen ascend, will return in the same way. He's going to return to the Mount of Olives from which he ascended, and he is going to return. He left as man. He is going to return as man, and he is going to set up a kingdom 
And Jesus Christ is going to set up a kingdom, a throne in Jerusalem. So he comes up to the Ancient of Days, God the Father and God the Son, according to verse, verse 13. And verse 14 says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, in the context, again, we've got kingdoms being destroyed, right? Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the revival of Rome, utterly destroyed. But here's a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And the one who will reign is none other than this one called the Son of Man, who is given this authority by God the Father, the ancient, the ancient of days. And when you read verse 14, that ought to remind you of something too. Just like I said, you know, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000. That language is just like Revelation 4 and 5 that John saw that comprises the, uh, the last book of your Bible. Verse 15, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit. The visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Now, let me just stop there. You know, Daniel's emotionally invested <laughs> here. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, bears with ribs hanging out of their mouth. <laughs> and I'm just saying, you'd be disturbed too, <laughs> okay? But not disturbed in a way that, you know, I'm despairing or something like that. It's just, what does all this mean? Right? I'm seeing all this. So, verse 15, I'm troubled in spirit. My mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. And so he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. And then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. By the way, bronze claws. That's the first time we've heard of bronze claws. But, you know, again, just showing the, the ferocity. The, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before uh, which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. And he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast... No, let me just stop. All right, we got five minutes. So here's Daniel saying, I want to know more. You know, and, and, and just, it is, really, it is really cool that Daniel wanted to know more. <laughs> and Daniel was given more, which in turn means we were given more, <laughs> which is why we're able to read this, about now more detail about this, this fourth kingdom. Verse 23, he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king, an eleventh one, will rise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High, oppress the sa his saints, and try to change the set times and the laws. Now, the Antichrist is going to try, try to change the set times and the laws. Now, who is the Antichrist's boy? Or... or I mean, the Antichrist is Satan's boy, right? He's his masterpiece. And he is going to, he wants to be the most high. We know that, don't we? 
We know this from Isaiah chapter 14. I will be, says Lucifer, like the Most High. And so when you read this now, in verse 25, that he's trying to change the set times and the laws, he knows his days are numbered. He knows he has a short time, in fact, the book of Revelation tells us. And yet he wants to change that. He still thinks he can change that. Verse 25, the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Now we saw that previously. Time, one year, times, two more, half a time, that's three and a half years, corresponds with Revelation chapters 11, 12, and 13 that mention this latter portion of the uh, seven-year tribulation. And uh, the latter half, three and a half years, in terms of 42 months or 1,260 days, or in this case, three and a half years. Verse 26, but the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Now this is referring to what the Old Testament talks about over and over and over again, and that is the coming kingdom that we, we now know to be something called the millennium. Now, I say the the coming kingdom that we now know to be the millennium. You know, the Bible throughout has spoken of a coming kingdom that will restore Eden, that will be the restoration of all things the way they were supposed to be. But what we didn't know is how long this thing was. How long is this kingdom? Did you know that the Apostle Paul died without knowing how long the kingdom would last? He died without knowing that. It's not until you get to the last book of the Bible, book of Revelation. It's not until you get to the second to the last chapter, chapter 20, that we're told the length of this kingdom. And it's said to be six times in Revelation chapter 20, a thousand years or a millennium. That's why we call the kingdom the millennium. And then the after that, the kingdom that the Old Testament speaks of will merge into what we call the eternal state. Satan will be finally defeated, cast into the lake of fire, along with the beast and the false prophet, say the the book of Revelation, and then we will have what we normally think of as, as heaven. Okay, And then verse 28. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale. But I kept the matter, I kept the matter to myself. And what's that? Obviously, he didn't keep it to himself completely. <laughs> I, I found a copy. <laughs> okay. But he kept the matter to himself for a period of time. And this is similar to, and then we've got to go, but similar to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Do you remember Paul says there that he says, I knew a man. He doesn't even use his own name, but as you read through it, it's clear it's him that he's referring to, that I, Paul, had the opportunity to see the third heaven. This is the, this is the abode of God. And I saw these surpassing visions that amazed me. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, to keep me from being boastful. 
I was given a thorn in my flesh. And, and, and that's apparently what's going on with, with Daniel here as well. That, that, that Daniel is, is contemplating this. He's not going around selling tickets. He's not going around trying to make a name for himself. He has seen a vision that is completely and utterly about the true and living God and his, his glory and his honor and his, and his power and his dominion. And he is not going to usurp that glory. And so I kept these matters to myself, ultimately writing them down so that we would, that we would know them as well. All right. We'll look at chapter 8 uh, beginning next week. Chapters 8 through 12 begin to really hone in on God's people, the Jews and Israel in all of these things. But we'll do that in two weeks. Next week, no, uh, no ministries, okay? All right, thanks.